Listener Production. Whenever I need to book a restaurant, Alice Zaslavsky is the number I call. The former MasterChef contestant and fan favourite knows more about food and foodie culture than just about anyone. Importantly, Alice also makes food accessible. She isn't about spending the most money or being a culinary genius or using only particularly sourced ingredients. She is a food Democrat. As ABC News Breakfast's food correspondent, she's committed to making it possible for everyone to eat well. If you haven't noticed, there are plenty of people cooking, maybe for the first time, or maybe um, they're trying something new. So I thought that we would start with the basics. Alice's latest cookbook is In Praise of Veg, and it's been reprinted so many times that I have lost count. Alice has some excellent tips for getting more of the good stuff into your diet. She and I also go deep in this conversation on kids and food and that dinnertime battle we all need to leave behind. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. The Weekend List is on its way where Bron Doizak and I recommend what to eat. We're leaving behind the watchers and the reads today and giving you a special list of recommendations that's all about food in honour of my guest, Alice Zaslavsky. Alice Zaslavsky, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It's so delightful to see your smiling face. Ah, oh, Jamila Rizvi, the things I need to do in order to have a conversation with you. This is how many times have I tried to call you and I'm just like, you know what, I'll just go on her podcast. Make an appointment <laughs> with our wonderful producer, Bron, and then we're able to chat. Life is a bit out of control at the moment, Alice, and it is for you as well, I know, because you're wearing a lot of hats and doing a lot of things. Your newest gig is on ABC Radio Melbourne. Tell me what that's like for you, moving into what is a new profession, right? You you are doing something that people train for years to do and you've kind of come in sideways. How's it going? It is going extremely well. Um, I've decided I'm going to call it my jobby. It's like a hobby job because I just love it so much. I find that it's the kind of thing that I'm looking forward to. I do it once a week on a Saturday morning. I'm not just talking about my area of expertise, which means that I'm stretching my, you know, neural pathways. I'm connecting new ones. As you say, like it's a new job. So from the perspective of upskilling, I had the steepest learning curve ever because just before my first Saturday morning breakfast show, I had to fill in for Jacinta Parsons for a week. And rather than say had, I got to fill in for Jacinta Parsons for a week, three and a half hours a day for five days straight into two and a half hours of radio. By day five, I was just like, doing like, you know, half hour timeouts and just all of the little technical things I was doing so much better. And then we came into Saturday and at 5am learned that there was no AM, which is normally at 8am. And that's like the end of my show. So we had half an hour to pad and I was just like, bring it on. (laughs) So it's good. I think, um, I think it's important to continue to challenge yourself and say yes, even if you don't think that you're exactly fully qualified. Alice, I want to start at the very beginning. You were born in Georgia. You're of Russian Jewish heritage. Tell me about what you remember of your childhood before coming to Australia. I have many fond memories of Georgia. 
many rose-tinted fond memories of a beautiful, fertile place. We had a, my grandpa had a, a dacha, which was like a weekender where I would spend weekends sitting out in the garden, picking persimmons and pomegranates and figs off the trees and, um, you know, when he wasn't looking. And I spent many an evening helping my babushka make dumplings, you know, pilmenu. She had like a dumpling press. Very cool. I remember that. And then on the flip side, the not-so-rose-tinted, this was the end of uh, the Soviet Union. It was sort of towards 89, 90. I, I was born in 85. So I have very vivid memories coming back increasingly in starker relief of soldiers on the streets, of tanks on the streets. I read a book recently based in Georgia and one of the kind of storylines is about the 89 protests where 30 people were killed and it was on the street that my kindergarten was that this happened. And I said to my mum, mum, you know, were we there? And she said, oh, no, it happened at night, so you didn't see it. But we walked those streets every day. And I, I suppose that's what happens. You know, your child mind protects you from those memories. So I'm very fortunate that the civil unrest wasn't the primary kind of memory bank that I took away from that place. What do you know of your parents' decision to bring your family to Australia? How did that come about? I know that it was a decision that was not made lightly because one half of my family was like staunchly communist and the other half was completely against. And so, you know, my parents were kind of caught between. And I think for them, you know, we were pretty comfortable, as comfortable as Russian Jews could be in the Soviet Union. We still had to kind of hide the fact that we were celebrating and marking our traditions. What it came down to, there were a few little things like my mum was prevented from a promotion because of her Jewish last name, you know, and I think it got to a point where actually my parents realised more and more of their friends were leaving and going to f the far ends of the earth and for them they finally made that huge decision to leave everything behind, everything behind, because if you leave, one of the stipulations was that you couldn't take any valuables with you. Family heirlooms, everything, we started again. My parents had applied for visas to... Israel, to America, to Germany, and finally to Australia. And it was Australia that came through first, I think. That's essentially, you know, Australia opened its gates at essentially the very last minute. They applied and they got in and they thought, well, it's far enough away. It seems like a, a nice place to go. We've got a few friends that have moved to Australia and they seem to like it, so let's do it. And they left. Rizvi, I only found this out a couple of years ago, they left without having enough money to get us tickets to Australia. We came to Singapore and it was only then when we flew to Singapore and arrived that they had found out that some friends of friends lent them the money to get the tickets to Sydney. So there but for the grace, right? Picking up on there but for the grace, do you ever think about what life would have been like if you hadn't left? What do you think would have happened to you if you hadn't left? I think about it a lot. I like to think that I'm a dandelion rather than an orchid and I would always find a way to land on my feet and, you know, make the most of it. We went back in 2014 for the first time since we left and I made friends there and so I see what they get up to and I think I would have found my place and I would have, you know, there's a MasterChef Georgia, Rizvi. So <laughs> one of my friends is the Matt Preston of, of Georgia. You know, he's, he's a judge on that show with the one with the cravat. I would have found my place somehow, but the opportunities that this country has afforded my family and, and me are just infinite. And there was a series 
you know, the Seven Up series? Yeah. Yeah, so they did an Up series in the Soviet Union and the kids were born around the same age, the same year that I was, and I watched the 21 Up and I wept and wept. It's not because they were in unfortunate circumstances or anything like that, but it just really brought home how privileged a life I've lived and how I know what sacrifices my parents made for us to be here and I'm just grateful every day. Ukraine is under full-scale Russian assault. Explosions and air raid sirens have been heard in several Ukrainian cities, including the capital, Kiev. Alice, it feels like we can't talk about your family's decision to leave the former Soviet Union without talking about what's happening in the news right now in 2022 with Russian troops moving into the Ukraine. What has it been like for for you and your family to watch that happening? There's a a word in in Russian, aptly it's Russian and Ukrainian, it's used widely and it's taska. And taska means it's a grief, it's a, it's a dampness, it's a longing and I think that it would be a feeling that a lot of people would be experiencing, anyone sort of across that part of the world, especially those that have been, been flung out of that part of the world, um, pushed and pulled and we would be feeling a similar way. I found it extremely difficult to watch risky, as you can imagine, and I've tried to stay engaged in the moment with what I'm doing as well as try to actively advocate as much as I can for the people over there. I think the most confusing thing probably for for those who are as far away as Australia to understand is that it's not Russia versus Ukraine. It's not Russians versus Ukrainians because Russians have Ukrainian heritage. Ukrainians have Russian heritage. You know, I'm Russian, Ukrainian, grew up in Georgia. It's not us and them. It's us and us which is why soldiers are finding it so difficult to fight. It's why people are finding it so difficult to understand. And I truly, I truly hope that this is a turning point for the world because of social media and because we can see so clearly what the human impact of war is. You know, we've seen it before across the world and we're seeing it again and surely... Surely the weight of it all is enough now. We've seen oligarchs driven to action, finally. People who you would normally characterise as aggressors and as power-hungry, they're standing up to power. Perhaps this is the turning point that the world needed and perhaps we can now see change across the world, across other parts of the world as well, Rizvi, I hope, I truly hope, and I, and I, God, I'm sorry. Please don't be sorry. I think so often with conflicts that happen on the other side of the world, we can feel a real distance from what's going on. We feel mm. the distance makes it hard. And hearing from you is a really important reminder that there are so many Australians who have Ukrainian or Russian heritage who are feeling this not as empathetic onlookers but as family and friends and people who are still attached to the countries where their forebears came from. For you, you said, you know, day to day you're you're trying to focus on your own work and, and at the same time 
do what you can. For people who are, are listening, what, what can we do to help out right now? We can actively agitate within our communities. It feels pithy to sign a petition, but surely it's the weight of public opinion that, that we need to continue to, to agitate for and not allow it to, to become kind of like something that's over there. I think the most important thing is that we need to think about our own sphere of influence and what it is that we're capable of. There's so much happening at the moment and it, it does feel overwhelming, you know, and you wonder where should I be putting my attention and my energy and you just got to say to yourself, what is it that I can give? Like, what, what can I do? And it's ironic that communism in its kind of essence is about from everybody to their ability to everybody to their need, right? <laughs> and it got confused across the way. And I'm not, that's certainly, I mean, I don't know, I'm going to listen back and my parents are going to facepalm. But I think ultimately it's about feeling like you can contribute in some way and not finding yourself spiralling into helplessness and hopelessness and sometimes also checking in with yourself and saying, now is not the time for me to do this. And other times saying, you know, if I've got the energy, where can I put the impact? You know, I mentioned that word, taska. It's a very damp feeling and that damp can be driven out through the fire of action and through the capacity to help. And you can see, for example, there's a campaign over in London founded by a couple of my colleagues, you know, Olya Hercules and Alisa Timoshkina. Alisa's Russian, Olya's Ukrainian. Um, and obviously I'm sure there's a little bit of intersection there too. Uh, and they've started a campaign called Cook for Ukraine and it's already having incredible traction not only in the UK but already around the world. Mandy Hall over in Australia has taken the reins of trying to organise and wrangle. There's already a fundraiser this weekend in Melbourne, in Thornbury. There's stuff happening in Sydney, all over the country. Again, it's kind of like, you know, what can we do? That question is really important. Uh, what can we do? And we can do heaps. And we can do heaps for, for all conflict around the world. And it's time now. We've seen this time and time again and I think often because it is far away we think oh there's nothing I can do to help but there's shitloads there's shitloads that you can do to help so if you can whatever whether it's just like putting an, a signature on a petition whether it's contributing financially or whatever your art is you know whatever your craft is whatever you can do um, and also it's about staying informed as well. Alice you and I are going to go on to chat about some other things now we're going to chat about your career. We're going to chat about food. We're going to chat about your love of food and your incredible achievements. But for those listening, if you have some dollars that you can spare right now, there are an enormous number of charities doing good work to help the people of the Ukraine. You could go to the Red Cross, you can go to the UN, there you can go to Save the Children. The situation that is unfolding in the Ukraine is incredibly concerning. The ongoing and now escalating violence is going to have a very heavy humanitarian toll. People's lives, people's well-being, their homes and really essential infrastructure for living is going to be impacted. And we have to remember this comes after eight long years of conflict. So if you can help, please do. Being a dandelion, you did thrive here in Australia. You became a teacher and you were teaching at Halebury Grammar in Brighton when you auditioned for MasterChef, the Australian MasterChef. You were an absolute fan favourite on season four. 
tell me what it was like behind the scenes. We all watch it. We all love that show. What's it like being on it? It's like being back at school. You're kind of thrust into an environment where everybody that has been cast has been cast because they're different to you. And we surround ourselves with people like us because they're the people that we like. And here were people that, you know, if you try and talk to them before 10am, they will not enjoy it. So (laughs) I had to learn to adapt um, my personality and kind of dial it down. And it made me question who I was and what I stood for and kind of took me to my edges. But what it meant for me now is that I'm much clearer in who I am and not just who I was produced to be, but actually, you know, and and it's, it's a constant, like I wouldn't say I'm at 100%, but it's a constant kind of like checking in and saying, is this true, is this authentically where I want to go and who I want to be. What part does food play in who you are? Food is a very easy way for me to make friends because people know that I know where to go. So they know to text me to ask me where, you know, Yes, I've done that myself. I'll put my hand up. I'm guilty. (laughs) They know that they can text me and say, I'm cooking this, um, this isn't working, etc. So I feel very helpful in that capacity. Food is also a connector for me. I think I'm a connector as a person and I crave connection and, and I crave common ground and everybody eats and everybody wants to eat deliciously, you know, and I, I shouldn't generalise actually because some people do see food as fuel mm. and I'm more than happy to find common ground even with those people. I, I can do it. I can do it. Uh, <laughs> I think that it's a really common language for everybody to speak. When you were growing up, what were your favourite meals to eat with your parents, with your grandparents, with the people closest to you? Simple stuff and still the things that I crave. My comfort food is a little bit different to, to most. It's the Georgian dishes that I come back to and the Russian dishes, um, you know, things like piroshki. There are these potato rissoles that I put in in Praise of Veg in my cookbook, which are like mashed potato stuffed with stuff. And these ones are mashed potato stuffed with like a mushroom duck cell, which is not so authentic actually, but it's delicious. And, you know, simple stuff that I craved also when I was pregnant. That was absolutely, it was really strange. I had like an inordinate craving to go to the Russian deli and buy anything involving cabbage, buy pickles and sauerkraut and all of the things that clearly, you know, my gut flora, my my microbiome was saying, hello, hello, (laughs) this is what you need. (laughs) This is who you are. I asked people on my social media just recently to tell me about the best sandwich of their life. And I was floored by the literally hundreds and hundreds of detailed, graphic, almost pornographic responses Mm. about people's favourite sandwiches. Food is so closely linked to memory of time and place. What's one of those food memories that stands out for you that's perhaps reflective of a broader memory in your life? Food is tied to memory. It's physiological. You know, our olfactory system is directly linked to that area of our brain that deals in memory. So that's why aroma is so evocative. The one sandwich that I think of is the one that my mum would make me when I was in kindergarten. That same kindergarten in Georgia, she was working at a university nearby and 
she would make me that sandwich because every day at lunchtime they would serve us this slop, this gruel called schlaplap, which was kind of like a wet rice with gristle, and I couldn't keep it down. And so little four-year-old, I know, four-year-old, five-year-old Alice would eat it and regurgitate it and they would have to call my mother and she would come and get me and she would take me back to her office and she would make me dark bread, like a dark rye with a half a risole and some satsabeli, which is like a Georgian tomato sauce, and I'd eat that. And even now I think about the gift that she gave me because that could have been, you know, a real moment of shame and guilt and internalising like a, a fear of food and she turned that into connection and, and joy and family. Oh, I feel really teary. Uh, go Alice's <laughs> mum. Yeah, she's, she's great. Thanks, Freda. <laughs> you know, both you and I have young children and one of the things that I find comes up again and again for parents of young children is the emotional turmoil of dealing with a kid that won't eat or won't eat certain foods. And for so many parents, every mealtime is a battle. And I think before I had a kid, I was just like, oh, man, just make them eat good stuff. Like, how hard can it be? And I know so many parents for whom it is a deeply personal and distressing Mm. reality. When you talk to parents about children and food, what kind of advice do you give? Yeah, Gosh, and I remember having conversations with you before I was a parent where I was like, well, why don't they just, you know, the same stuff, why don't they just eat good food? And you introduced me to the concept of agency and agency in the context of children and choice and personal choice. And that's something that I try to impart on parents that gone are the days where you can just say, well, just eat it or eat it because it's good for you or it's even coercive to say, just try one bite because already what that's saying is that you don't trust them enough to someday down the line want to make that choice for themselves. So my number one advice, and I know like easier said than done, but what you're attaching is your worth as a parent on your capability in feeding your child. Like your child will not starve and if they feel comfortable at this point eating those foods, it's okay it will pass. It's a power dynamic situation and they can tell that it's driving you cray cray. So the sooner that you remove a little bit of that personal turmoil, inner turmoil, that if you don't eat this, then I'm a bad parent. And it's more like if you don't eat this, then maybe you're not hungry. Maybe you've already had, you know, you've had daycare all day and you've snacked a million times and now you're just not hungry at dinner time. I read a really good piece of advice from a nutritionist um, that said that don't think about your child meal by meal. Think about it cumulatively, kind of like across the week. Have they eaten enough and have they had a, a wide variety of food across the week? exposure is really important and that doesn't mean that they have to put it in their mouths. Just having it on the table, making mealtime more about share plates where they can choose what they put onto their own plate is really valuable and they need to see you eat it, which is why starting to make separate meals for them actually makes a rod for your own back down the line. So the sooner that you can kind of be 
showing them that we're eating the same thing and I'm really enjoying it. And I'm not enjoying it in like a performative way because I want you to enjoy it, but actually because it's delicious, then you can kind of remove some of that. And what I try to do with my resources for kids, you know, with Phenomenon, with A to Z, is that it's not about the nutritional benefits. It's not about the healthy because as soon as you say eat it because it's good for you or eat it because it's healthy, then you're actually... It's a chore. Uh, that's it. It's a chore. And you're lessening the expectation of flavour. So it needs to start with, does it taste good? So taste it before you serve it up to your kids. Because people say to me all the time, like, Hazel eats everything. She's such a good eater. She's the fussiest eater ever. And my cooking has gotten better because I'm tasting my food and I'm asking myself, is this tasting the way that I want to deliver it? Because I'm like a culinary curator for her and every experience of food that she has at the moment is like the first time she tastes a passion fruit, the first time she tastes a tomato. So I make sure that it's like at the peak of its season, that it's that I taste it first and I go, oh yeah, that's not a great cucumber. I'm not going to give you that because then you're going to say, I don't like cucumbers. And in fact, if your child says, I don't like that, you can say, oh yeah, fair enough. But you know, it's not that they don't like mushrooms. It's that they didn't like that expression, that dish with the mushrooms, maybe it was sloppy, maybe it was under-seasoned, maybe it was a bit too earthy for them at that point. It doesn't mean that as a rule for the rest of their lives, they're not going to like mushrooms. That's up to you to continue to be open-minded, open-hearted and watch your language at the table too, because we all come with our own baggage with food and we all come with our own likes and dislikes, but we cannot show those to our children at this point because they're much more concrete in their thinking than we are and they are much more sort of black and white. They don't see nuance. So just don't let some of that language enter into their consciousness and into their identity. If you were a fashion designer, I think it'd be pretty (laughs) standard for me to ask you about trends. But I want to ask you about food trends because food is something we talk about in terms of what's in and what's out now. You know, food is fashionable. And I think after two years spent for a lot of us, mostly inside at home, we have kind of rediscovered our love of cooking and our love of cooking for ourselves. And people have become a little bit more adventurous with what they cook. So what are we going to see for the rest of the year in food trendiness? The trends, I've got a few friends who are food journalists for whom they've just written food trend articles. So I'm going to go off my own instincts, not based on more research, but more so based on what I'm seeing around the traps. Uh, number one, even through the success of books like In Praise of Veg, you know, veg forward eating, plant forward eating, you know, flexitarianism is a super trend. People well, hold are on, becoming- what's flexitarianism? Flexitarianism is that you're not a vego, but you know you're, you're flexy. So sometimes you're vego, sometimes you're omni. You do you do you. Um, yeah, okay. You don't, have to, you don't have to put a title on it. Oh, you can be that. Yeah, you can be that. Uh, people can be reducitarians. There's a lot of them. You don't have to be anything resvi. You can just eat so what you eat. These are all complicated words for more vegetable, less meat and fish. Right. That's it. Exactly. Veg forward. That's I, I think of our diets veg forward. And the reason why is because when I plan a meal, I go, what veg have we got first? And then I think about what other stuff goes around it. Then native ingredients. We have people commercialising warrigal greens, river mint, salt bush, not just commercialising but, but scaling, so making them more accessible to us, the consumers, and showing us more about how we can cook with them. I would say on that track authentic culturally rich cuisine where people are 
tapping into their childhood memories and, and being a lot more kind of connected with their culture. I think that they're championing diverse voices a lot more in the food industry and we're going to see some really exciting cookbooks coming out from lots of new voices, which is great to see um, and so fresh. And I think that's the thing that excites me most about cookbooks too is, you know, you get to actually take something off a page, cook it, and then it's like, huh, I'm transported to a totally different place. In the drink space, non-alcoholic alcohol spritzes and wines and there are a couple of, because uh, it's not the ABC, I can say, you know, things like non, things like Senza, delicious beverages that give you exactly what you want. You know, you still feel social, you still feel like you're having a tipple, but you don't wake up the next morning with a sore head. Alice, I saw a tweet overnight from, I'm going to credit them, from at Ronui underscore. Anyway, they tweeted, I would watch Euphoria which is the biggest TV show going around at the moment, if it didn't have drugs and they all got along and they had to bake three things a week to impress the judges and try to get Star Baker. Why do we love cooking shows so much? Why it's is the it? Jeopardy. I just find so much comfort in shows about food, whether it's baking, whether it's meals, no matter what it is, those shows are where I retreat for the nourishment of the soul. I will, I will tell you from, um, you said nourishment of the soul. So you get the satisfaction of the story arc because it's not like you're just watching somebody cook. You're watching somebody cook where the narrative has been crafted by professionals. So there's that satisfaction. So you do get that kind of jeopardy factor. You get the payoff in the end. You get the highs and lows and you, you get attached to the characters as well because you get to know their stories. And at the same time, you can justify it by saying, I'm learning to cook better or I'm learning to bake better and so you can spend more time sitting down on the couch. So it's like edutainment, which I'm all for it. The first competitive cooking show that I watched was Great British Menu. I loved it and I got to know these chefs that then I got the chance to meet some of and there's a lot to be said for for competitive cooking shows but also just for, for watching people cook in general without the – what I'll say is that having been a contestant on a cooking show, you don't get the best out of people when you're on the clock or you're under pressure. It's been a very tough couple of years for the Australian restaurant scene, particularly in Melbourne but along the East Coast really with restaurants having reduced capacity or no capacity at all mm. at different points during the last couple of years. It feels like, knock on wood, we're coming out of that. Restaurants are able to open their doors to the kinds of numbers that they were before the pandemic. Where should we be going? Who is everyone talking about? Oh, wow. It feels like that kind of flapper era, you know, post-depression, new day, new dawn, throw open the windows, less Gatsby, more great. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a tragedy, it's a renaissance, I suppose. What we will come out of the pandemic appreciating more is the effort that people go to in the hospitality industry to get that food on the plate and to even open the restaurant. So where should we be going? We should be going to our local haunts, the ones that we missed so much and we have been thinking about and we ordered takeaway from 1000%, start there, support them because they've really had it tough. Then you should think about accessing some of the established players, the ones that maybe people who are the the blow-ins that think about just going to where's hot, you know, think about going to the institutions of whatever city or town you live in, just to remind them how much we appreciate them and the fact that they've managed to stick around for so 
many decades. Then you can think about some of those young hot chefs that are doing really exciting kind of game-changing stuff. So be patient. The food might take longer or you might not get a booking that night. Keep trying, keep supporting because we are all at one food chain. We're all links on that food chain and we can all continue to keep that momentum going together. Alice, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Oh, Rizmi, thank you so much. I can't wait to come over to your house again so that you may cook for me. I will not mention. Do you want me to? I'm not. Everyone, Alice came to dinner at my house and I got really excited. So I tried to cook a mushroom pie from her cookbook in praise of veg and I set the cookbook on fire. And I took the cookbook. I happened to have a spare copy in the car. So I swapped them out and I was waiting. Like I didn't say anything. I was waiting for you to kind of laugh and I just heard nothing. Took me about six months to figure out that the cookbook wasn't burnt anymore magically. (laughs) But it just makes me worry that you didn't pick it up for six months, but I'm assuming you just didn't turn to the brown pages. (laughs) I love it. It's just magic. (laughs) That's it for my conversation with Alice Zaslavsky. Her incredible cookbook, In Praise of Veg, is available now at all the good bookstores and probably the bad ones too. My favourite thing about that cookbook is that it's organised by colour colour of the vegetable that you've got sitting in your crisper that's about to go gross and you need to use it. And so you can be like, oh, I've got a lot of mushrooms. I need the brown section. Or I've got a zucchini. I need the green section. Anyway, it's very good. Go buy it. And don't go away because Bron is going to be here in just a moment for the weekend list. It is time for the weekend list and Bron is here who has a very relevant recommendation for today's episode. Well, I just love Alice and her book, In Praise of Veg, I can't recommend it enough. It's just even just so beautiful to mm. have on your bookshelf. It's, it is thick. It's a big boy. It's got every single vegetable you could think of. It's just simple recipes that you can do like at any level, I'd say. Some more complex than others, but you will find the ones that work for you. And like I said, just the imagery the cover on the bookshelf, it is just stunning. I am going to second that recommendation because Alice's mushroom pie, oh my God, I don't know how many times I've cooked it. It is so deeply delicious. And mushrooms are always good, but when you cover them and surround them with buttery, flaky pastry, turns out they're even better. Bron. I also have a foodie recommendation, and that is the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, which kicks off later this month. Whether or not you are a Victorian, this is something worth travelling for, folks. And they have had it really tough down here over the last couple of years. So get amongst it. Celebrate some great Melbourne restaurants with some incredible new offerings. There is one session called High Stakes. (laughs) that is presented by Australian Good Meat that is all about how to cook the perfect steak. If that's not your thing, there's another one called Maximum Chips. That's right, go big or go home. It is all about the art of the potato chip. And there are some great sessions like Crawl and Bite that are all about exploring Melbourne's laneways and the delicious food they have to offer. You can check it all out on their website, which is melbournefoodandwine.com.au. Bron, keep us going with the food-themed recommendations. So I've got a nice little cocktail for you. We all know the Aperol Spritz was huge probably a few years ago. It was just everywhere on everyone's Instagram feed. 
Some people find it a bit too bitter. So if you're not into the Aperol Spritz, can I recommend a Lemon Cello Spritz? It's much sweeter. It's nice. It's still refreshing, still gets the summer, you know, Italian vibes if you're going for that. Just a shot of Lemon Cello, a bit of sparkling wine, like Prosecco or Champagne if you're feeling fancy, and a splash of soda water and obviously garnish to your liking. But it is refreshing to end your summer. And of course, as always, drink responsibly. And if you are looking for an alcohol-free version of a limoncello spritz, there's a few different mocktail recipes online as well. I love that. I love that. I have got one final recommendation for you, everyone, and it's a restaurant recommendation, but it's one that you can access from a whole bunch of places in Australia. Instead of the restaurant, I am going to recommend the restaurant owner. So Jesse Singh is the man behind a whole bunch of incredible Indian destinations for food. So he runs the unauthentic Indian restaurant Don't Tell Auntie in Sydney, as well as Daughter-in-Law in Melbourne and now Adelaide too, and Mr. Singh and Mr. Brownie, as well as other restaurants in New York and California as well. Daughter-in-Law has also just opened in Byron Bay. I love his food. It is beautiful Indian meals that remind me of my childhood and growing up in an Indian family, but they really have been kind of changed up and modernised to be made particularly of the moment. So there's a real mix of cultures. You'll get dishes that you wouldn't find in a typical Indian restaurant, but you'll also get modern favourites that we all hope for and we love when we are at an Indian restaurant. I massively recommend, in particular, if you are at one of the daughter-in-laws in any city, you have to try the Golgapa or the Balls of Happiness, as they call them. There is a reason this is India's most loved street food and Jesse Singh puts the most delicious twist on it. That's it for the weekend briefing today. Thank you so much to Bron. Thank you to Alistair Slavsky for a wonderful conversation that has made me very hungry. Very hungry, friends. If you want more from the weekend briefing or indeed the weekday briefing, then the best thing you can do is download the listener app where you can check us out as well as all of listeners' excellent podcasts or you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. That's where you can subscribe or follow us. You can leave a rating and review if you're feeling generous. We will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Stay safe, everybody. Listener.